Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be still this morning. We pray that as we quiet our hearts um, to be soft, to listen to your word and to your spirit, that you would speak to us. God, as we look at Isaiah chapter 54 this morning, that there would be something that stirs in our hearts about what is true of who you say we are because of your son and your servant, Jesus. So would you meet us this morning, God? Give us eyes to see clearly. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to be transformed into the image and the likeness of your son so that we might be a light to a hurting world. We ask that you would do it. We pray in your name. Amen. Good morning. Good to see you guys. Uh, if you have a Bible, it's already open. Open it up to Isaiah 54. We're going to jump right in. We have 17 verses to cover this morning. Um, and if you are new, we've been walking through a series called The Servant King, where we've been looking at the, uh, the section of uh, the prophet Isaiah from chapter 40 through 55, 15 verses, which is kind of one big running thought. Um, that we've been covering the last several weeks. Uh, we're rounding the corner of this series as we'll look at chapter 54 today and then next week, chapter 55. Uh, and then it'll be Easter. It's in two weeks. We'll celebrate the resurrection, which should be a great time of uh, people getting baptized and remembering what is true, that the tomb is empty for us and what that means for us that follow Jesus. And so, um, uh, Again, have your Bible open, uh, Isaiah chapter 54, and let me just give you some context if you are new and what we've been covering. In these 15 chapters of Isaiah 40 through 55, there's one kind of running theme through this whole section of Scripture, and that one running theme is the idea that the true God, this God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament, is the one true God, the God of creation. He has power over every idol. He has power to rescue and restore. He is the only God that can do that. He is in the process of rescuing and restoring his people. That's the whole uh, theme of these 15 chapters, the one true God will restore his people. And for context, the people need rescue and restoration. If you're unfamiliar with this part of the story, God's people who have been walking with him and following him as he has rescued them out of slavery uh, in Egypt from Pharaoh, and he has been walking with them, they continue to walk with God and trust God, and they walk and trust their idols. And they have this back and forth relationship and God in his patience, in his love, in his kindness continues to walk with these people up until a certain point. And then he goes, you guys, you need a different type of discipline because you're not really getting it. And so he says, I'm going to send a people to take over and they're going to drive you out of your land and you are going to be and punishment for a stretch, for a season. This is discipline. This is God's love and discipline to his people. And so Babylon comes in and they take over the nation of Israel, God's people. They drive them out of the land and they are in exile for about 70 years. And then in Isaiah 40, God comes in through his prophet and says, okay, the discipline is over. It's time to get restored. It's, it's time to be in right relationship with me again. And hopefully you've learned from this discipline. This is what's going to happen moving forward. And so even in those 15 chapters, you can kind of break it in, scholars break it into two sections. Chapters 40 through 48 is one section, and chapters 49 through 55 is the other section. 
And in chapters 40 through 48, it's really about this rescue from their physical captivity. He's saying, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to even use somebody that doesn't know me, King Cyrus, who's the king of Persia, to come in and overthrow Babylon. And you are going to be sent back to Jerusalem. And you need rescue from your circumstances, from your captivity. And the people are like, yes, we do. But then what God does in Chapters 49 through 55, he goes, there's actually a second rescue that you really need. You need rescue from your circumstances, and I'm going to do that. But you need a rescue from your heart, from your sin. And because of that, I'm going to send this servant, I'm going to send this Messiah who ends up being Jesus to rescue you from the darkness of your heart. And that's where we see and where we have seen in chapters 49 through 55, this prophecy about the Messiah that's going to come named Jesus. I love what the NIV application commentary says about chapters 54 and 55 is going to round out this section. It says this, Isaiah 54 and 55 forms two parts of a single whole. Chapter 55 is a love story by God to Zion, his estranged bride, telling her all the things he is going to do in restoring her. And chapter 55 is the invitation proper calling on the bride to not miss through unbelief what is hers. Together, they constitute one of the most beautiful pieces of literature in the entire Bible. And I would agree with that. Isaiah 55, the first beginning of that section, we'll get, cover it next week, is one of my favorite spots in all of the Bible. And soaking and sitting in Isaiah 54, I'm like, oh, this is pretty good too. Um, and so hopefully you'll experience that as we walk through the text together. If you weren't with us last week, Wayne Winter, who is our pastor at Redemption Alhambra, I'm just so thankful. We, we were in California last weekend, and Wayne stepped in to, to fill the pulpit and uh, just did an unbelievable job. He's such a great guy, and uh, I hope you enjoyed him. He looked at Isaiah 52, 7 through uh, chapter 53, and just to set up where we're going in 54, Isaiah 52, 7 says this. It says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation. You who say to Zion, your God reigns. And what I love that Wayne did, he set the cultural context of this passage, this verse of saying like, back in the day when there was a fight between uh, two different villages, you didn't know who was going to win. There's no email, there's no phone, there's no text. And so what they would do is they would send a runner from the battle and he would literally run back to the village to proclaim what happened. And if he came and he was running and he said, actually, we lost the battle, what the people would do was they would go, okay, let's scramble, let's hide, let's get out of here, let's take our belongings and leave because whoever won the battle was going to come and take over the village and it probably wasn't going to be good for you. But if this runner came and had good news, that actually we won the battle, then the people would be in a very different state of mind. They, they would go out and they'd begin to line the streets and they wouldn't have to leave and they would feel comfortable and they would feel satisfied because we've actually won the battle. We're not going to have to leave. We don't have to be in fear. And can you imagine waiting for that runner just in your village going like, I don't, I don't know if we're going to have to flee. I don't know if our family is going to be put together or, or if it's going to be totally dismantled. And as you wait and somebody runs and tells good news that we won the battle, you just go, okay. Like that changes the way I live. That changes the way the community reacts to what's happened. And this is exactly what Wayne 
was saying in this text of going like, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those that bring good news, and the battle is already won. And that's what Isaiah is prophesying, that because Jesus comes and what he does on the cross, he defeats sin, he defeats death, and now the good news is that we're not going to be overtaken. It hasn't happened yet, but that should change the way we live. We don't have to live in hiding. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in anxiety, but we can live in a freedom that's to come. And this is the idea of what the servant does for his people. So that sets the context for what we're diving into in chapter 54. So if you have your Bible, look at chapter 54. I want you to actually look at the last verse of this chapter. At the end of verse 17, this is what... The prophet says, he says, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Now, this phrase, the servants of the Lord, it's the first time it gets used in the book of Isaiah. It'll get used multiple times after, towards the end of the chapters. But we've been hearing about this servant, this coming Messiah, um, but we haven't heard servants of the Lord yet. And what the author is doing is telling us like when you make a decision to trust this servant this king when you bow your knee to the coming of Jesus now you become his servants you move into a different category and isn't that true with us as we've bent our knees to Jesus those of us have surrendered our life to Christ our whole life changes the Bible talks about that we become a new creation. The Bible talks you become adopted into this new family. You become a servant of the Lord. And as you're a servant of the Lord, what Isaiah is going to unpack in chapter 54 is that this is your heritage. Now, the word heritage doesn't get a lot of play anymore. Like even as we had, if we had a conversation, I said, what, what does the word heritage mean to you? How would you even define it? You might go, well, is that a school Sounds like a, like a suburb building uh, houses. I live in heritage somewhere. Like, like it doesn't really get, a, we don't usually use the word heritage a lot. And so I think it's helpful for us to go like, if Isaiah is saying all this stuff in these, these 17 verses leading to this end, is like, this is your heritage as a servant of the Lord. Like, what does that mean? What does heritage mean? And so let's watch this two-minute video to remind us of this word and what heritage actually means. Go ahead. And watch. What is heritage? I used to think that heritage was just about buildings and stone walls and castles and like old ruins and things like that. Now that I'm older, I realize that it's um, more than that. And it's about the traditions that we pass on, the music that we listen to, and everything around us. I think a lot of people would see heritage as part of saying who, who we are and who we might be. I'm from Galway and I grew up in Letterkenny. I'm Irish, but I'm also European. So we can have all these different identities. And by thinking about heritage, we can explore what they are and connect with other people through that as well. I think it's uh, the past and the, the comparing the past with the present. When you look back 50 or more years ago, like, you know, this country was in a much different place. And I think that it's important uh, to let the young people know how the situation was then. We often go up to see my dad's Uncle Seamus's museum, and I just loved seeing all the, the trinkets and everything. Heritage is about passing things on from generation to generation, 
and just like Seamus does in his museum because he always tells my dad stories and my dad always tells them to me. Heritage is part of the glue that holds communities together. There's um, a lot in it that is about people coming together or appreciating or taking care of the places that they're from. The committee who take care of this museum are here because they have heritage in common. Uh, and that happens whether it's taking care of a pond or a wildlife reserve in a village or a town or being concerned about the streetscape or the landscape that we live in. As a person gets older you kind of appreciate uh, the, the previous generations a bit more than what they did when you were young. When as time passes and maybe things get forgotten about and then remembered again, um, they acquired this value because they're telling you about something that's maybe uh, from the past. It's very important, I think, to link, have a link with the past. It's rich, it's uh, really special, you know, there's um, a depth to it. Heritage doesn't always have to be about ancient things, it can be stuff around us. I like the idea of saving things and keeping them and then looking back at them saying, wow, that was, that was such a big part of my life and keeping it, you know, keeping that memory. We talk about what the Bible is talking about with our heritage, what gets passed down to us. One of the comments in that video was that uh, heritage is part of the glue that holds communities together. So when you think about even your own story and your own family of origin, um, what are the things that have identified or shaped you as a family or as a people, these stories that get told to you in your family? I know for me, uh, it's integrated. Some of it's really good and some of it's really terrible, right? And for most of us, that's probably true. If you go over to our, our office across the way, um, some of you have been in there and you'll see a typewriter, an old typewriter that's in there. Um, that typewriter was my grandfather's typewriter, my dad's dad. He moved to D.C. and he wrote speeches for the government, wrote speeches for the president on that typewriter. That's a physical artifact that's passed down to me as part of my cultural heritage in my family that I'm proud of, that I want to remember, that I want to be reminded of. This Bible says J.C. Patterson on it. Stands for John Calvin Patterson, who was my grandfather's dad. And the inscription inside says, presented to our teacher, Westminster Presbyterian Church, Fort Worth, Texas, Christmas 1940. This is my great-grandfather's Bible. He was a pastor. I never wanted to be a pastor. I don't even know if I still want to be a pastor. It's a, um, but there's something about this. I got this about 15 years ago that I hold, like, this is part of my family line that I get to, it gets passed down to me that for generations, um, part of my family has believed this truth, and I'll look back, and I'll, I was looking this morning in Isaiah 54, like what does my grandpa have to say about Isaiah, my great-grandpa have to say about Isaiah 54? So there's good things in our, in our heritage, and then there's, man, there's shameful things in, in my heritage. Like even hearing stories of um, great-grandparents years ago, hearing little comments about racism, that like I'm shameful to even say that I'm connected with that. And so all of us have heritage that gets passed down to us. The question we're trying to ask this morning as we're servants of the Lord, those of us that are in Jesus, that have a new family, that are a new creation, what is your heritage as a Christian? 
That's what we're going to unpack in these 17 verses this morning. And so I'm going I'm to suggest that there are five that we're going to pull from uh, the text from these verses together. So we're just going to walk through them together. What is our heritage? What is true about us? What needs to get passed down to us to be reminded of who we are as servants of the Lord? Those of us that have made the decision to submit our lives to Jesus. The first one is this. That when we are servants of the Lord, we have a heritage. Uh, we have a faith to sing when circumstances seem unsingable. We have a faith to sing. This is something that gets passed down to us that are in Christ, servants of the Lord, that we can sing. We have a faith to sing when circumstances seem unsingable. Verse 1, Isaiah 54. Sing, barren woman. You have never borne a child. Burst into song. Shout for joy. You were never in labor because more of the children of the desolate woman than who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out your tent curtains wide and do not hold back. Strengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. Make your area bigger because you're going to have kids is what he is saying. Verse 3, for you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispose nations and settle and their desolate cities. We have the faith to sing when circumstances seem unsingable. Now, the world's heritage would say to us that you only sing when circumstances are good, when you close the deal, when you get what you want. Like, that's the, that's the reason to celebrate. That's the reason to sing. But as Christians, our cultural heritage that's passed down to us is we sing even in the midst of our terrible circumstances. And it says here, like, the, the woman is barren. And in that culture in that time, if you did not have kids, man, that, that, that was a huge deal in moving forward, even in where you were in your class and your status. And it's saying, you haven't been able to have kids, you're barren, but sing anyway, because I am going to do something. See, as we are followers of Christ in Christ, you sing by faith, you're trusting in a future that's not yet developed yet. And there's something about singing. Man, when we look around in our circumstances and we feel dark and we feel desolate and we feel barren, we sing by faith as a community of Jesus. And it changes us. It does something to us. God uses our words and our voices as we sing collectively in here, as we sing on our own, and he changes our hearts and our minds in the midst of our circumstances something we need to be reminded of that's a heritage that gets passed down to God's people and to us. So that's the first one, that we have a faith to sing when circumstances seem unsingable. Second thing we see in verses 4 and 5, that we have shame from our past undone and forgotten. This is a cultural heritage for those of us that are in Christ, that are servants of the Lord. Verse 4, do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. Our cultural heritage as a people of God, as servants of God, is that we have our shame from our past undone and forgotten. 
I love Brene Brown's definition of shame. She says it this way. She says, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. That's what shame is. It's this intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that because we're flawed, therefore we're unworthy of love and belonging. And we've all tasted shame. We've all experienced shame at some level. That thing that you've done when the doors are closed, when nobody else sees, and if I brought that into the light, what would you think of me? And you go, I, know, I don't want to tell anybody that. We all have experienced shame at some level in our life, in our heart. And if you're familiar with the biblical story we see in Genesis 1 and 2 that God makes everything and makes it beautiful and all of creation and everything is rightly ordered. There's this idea of shalom and rightness and peace together. And the last verse of Genesis chapter 2, do you know it? Do you, do you understand? Before everything falls apart in Genesis chapter 3 is that the wife, the, the man and woman were naked and had no shame. They were in right relationship with God. They were in right relationship with each other. They felt totally vulnerable. They felt totally loved. They felt totally connected with one another. Shame had not yet entered into the narrative until Genesis chapter 3. Where you guys know the story that Adam and Eve, the first humans, they choose to not follow God. They, they buy into a lie that God's somehow holding out on them. There's something better for them. Like, man, if you only tasted this, then you would really have life. And it's the same lie we believe today. That we get tricked into believing today that God's holding out on us. He doesn't really love us. There's something more. And we, just like Adam and Eve, we take that bait and we sin. And there's consequences of that sin. What are the consequences of the sin? All right, if you know the story, in Genesis chapter 3, God is going to connect with Adam and Eve. And as he goes down into the garden and he's walking in the cool of the day, what do Adam and Eve do? They hide. Which shame and hiding always go hand in hand. And so they're shameful, they're hiding. God engages in a conversation with Adam asking, where are you? What does Adam say? He says, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Because he had shame. Shame enters into the equation in Genesis chapter 3, and it doesn't get fully undone until Jesus comes and does what he does on the cross, being the ultimate sacrifice to cover our shame. Now, again, the world's heritage in the midst of this conversation with shame would say, like, man, you can't share that. Or like this idea of like, okay, I know you did something bad kind of behind closed doors, but if you do enough good, you can kind of outweigh your bad and then like this is kind of how it works. But our heritage that the scripture is telling us, what does it say? Your shame is forgotten. It's undone. Like no longer do you have to hide it. You bring it out into the light. And who covers your shame? The blood of Christ now covers your shame. So I can have conversations with a room of people like this when I can talk about how I was addicted to pornography when I was in high school. And I don't want to share that with anybody. That feels shameful. That feels terrible. That feels like, what are you all thinking? All the eyeballs at me right now. What are you all thinking about me right now? But as I continue to walk in Christ and my identity becomes more about what he has done in me and who I am in him, it now un out outbalances that shame. 
And I begin not to forget that part of my story, but I begin to believe more about what God has done in and through me, through Christ. That becomes more of a powerful narrative than this shame narrative over here. And so some of us are still living in this kind of worldly cultural heritage of like, well, I can't talk about my shame. I can't, because you've tried to kind of put it out there and it's been shot back and you've been hurt. And what this is saying and what is true of us in Christ is that, no, we can bring our shame into the light and God can heal it. He can change it. He can rescue us from our shame. That's unbelievably beautiful. If you really start buying into that and believing it, it changes the way you live. So again, the first thing is that we have faith, our heritage in Christ as servants of the Lord. We have faith to sing when circumstances are unsingable. We have uh, shame from our past undone and forgotten. And then the third one, we have the promise that we won't feel the wrath of God that we deserve. Verses 6 through 10. It says, the Lord will call you back. And if, or as you were, a wife deserted and distressed in the spirit, a wife who married young, only to be rejected, says God. For a brief moment, I abandoned you, but with a deep compassion, I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. To me, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains may be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Our cultural heritage is that we have the promise that we won't feel the wrath of God that we deserve. And again, because of our sin, because of our separation with God, what happens in Genesis 3, what happens with us is we've offended a holy God and there's a separation there. And that we deserve punishment, we deserve this wrath, but because of what Jesus is going to come and do as the Messiah and as we surrender ourselves to him, now the anger that should be pointed at us is pointed at Jesus on the cross. The full wrath of God is poured out on Jesus on the cross. So now that when I exchange my life for his, he doesn't look at me and become angry. He looks at the cross and what he has done to his son Jesus, and now I am set free. And this is, a, this is an interesting text. Like, it's, it's, it's even confusing to me because I go, like, what does it mean God doesn't get angry anymore? Like, Jesus gets angry in the temple. Like, I think God's angered by our sin. But again, I think he puts his gaze on the cross, number one, if we're in Christ. And number two, it feels like in the New Testament, God's uh, uh, more sad, he's grieved than he is angry. And I think what the, the text is trying to point us to, even in the example of Noah, is just like the rainbow. When I see a rainbow, I really believe the promise that God is never going to destroy the earth with water all over again. And what this is saying is he's going like, I know I stepped away from you for a moment for discipline reasons. I am never going to step away from you in anger again. You can be confident in that. 
And again, this is for those of us that are in Christ. If we've made this exchange with our life, this is not for everybody. This is for people that have said, yes, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. And you have accepted it. You've become a new creation. You've been adopted by God. Now, God's anger is pointed at Jesus and not at you. Many of us just kind of imagine God up there just kind of like, oh, you did it again. You, I can't believe it, right? Like, don't we kind of think that? Like, I think that at times, like whether you've had a coach or a parent or somebody, like that's kind of how they interact. And so we kind of just project that onto God and we go, God's just, man, he's just, ter- he's just angry with me. Again, I think God's not okay with our sin. I think he's angry at our sin. I think he's grieved at our sin. But he's not grieved. He's not angry to the point of going, no, I'm gonna walk away from you. Like even this passage of saying like, well, I hid my face for a moment. This is an example of God's passive wrath. What that means is this idea of like God's going, okay, you keep saying you want to do this. I'm saying don't do this. You keep saying you want to do this. Okay, I'll let you do this. And then the results are terrible. That's his passive wrath of just stepping back of common grace and going like, you want to go ahead and do this. Like it's not going to go well for you. And he's saying, I'm not going to do that if you are in Christ. I'm not going to let my anger get to the point where I leave you. I'm going to be with you. I will not leave you. So, again, number one, our inheritance as, our heritage as followers of Christ, as servants of the Lord, is to have faith, to sing when circumstances are unsingable, to have our shame from our past undone and forgotten, to have the promise that we won't feel the wrath of God that we deserve. Number four, that we have solid ground protection and beauty amidst chaos. Verses 11 and 12 say this. Afflicted city. So he changes the metaphor here. It was a barren woman, uh, a, a, a left woman, a widowed woman. Now he's changing the narrative, the metaphor to a city. Afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted. I will rebuild you with stones of turquoise, foundations of lapis, Lazuli, that's just a really blue stone. Some of your translations say sapphire. That's what that is. Uh, Verse 12, I will make you uh, battlements of rubies and your gates of sparkling jewels and all your walls of precious stones. Our heritage as servants of Christ or servants of the Lord is to have solid ground, protection, these walls that God is going to build, protection and beauty in the midst of chaos. This city is being tossed about. It's, it's lashed by its storms. It's not comforted. And God's, in his mercy, in his grace, he rebuilds the walls, giving us a solid foundation of protection and beauty. And he can do that in your life as well. Again, the world's heritage would say, like, you, you, you build your own walls of protection. You live life long enough to try and figure it out and go, okay, that happened to me. I'm never letting that happen again. And so you start to build these walls of protection on your own. And God is saying, like, if you're in Christ, like, let me build the walls of protection. You don't need to build the walls of protection. Let me do it. And I'm going to do it with beauty and I'm going to do it with solid foundation. Your walls that you build don't have solid foundation. They are faulty and they won't protect you from what you need protection from. And again, as we build kind of our own walls, like the question is like, what gives us our security if we're building the walls on our own, right? Money, power, position. 
And what we learned in our series at the beginning of the year, Rich Towards God, all of those things that we build our own, these faulty walls, they just, they can go away overnight. But what God is saying is like, let me build your walls of protection. Let me provide this solid foundation for you, this beauty of protection. When you're in Christ, his spirit does the building, even when your circumstances seem dark. And you look around and you go, like, I feel like a city tossed to and from me. I don't feel comfortable. And some of us, man, we, we get so impatient with God's timing in our life. We fire him as our contractor and we start building based on the world's blueprints for happiness, don't we? Go, God, I'm tired of waiting for this. I'm tired of you built, like, I'm tired of doing that. I don't want to do that anymore. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to build the walls myself. And God is reminding us our heritage. No, 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 no. Be patient. Like, I'm going to build your walls. It's going to be better. Trust me. Trust me in this. God will build your walls. I was in the prayer space this morning. It's just so interesting to me how I feel like God connects with me in certain spaces and certain times. And I was just up there, and, I, and if you've been in the prayer space before, there's, there's rolled up prayers that are kind of up on the wall, but then there's also a wall with people just hanging their prayers. And so I don't go in and like unroll your prayers if you put them up there, but like I'll sometimes read the ones that are just kind of posted in there. Um, and even last night, like I'm, I'm thinking through this dynamic that I, I have, and, and I'm going like, ah, I feel a little anxious about this. I feel a little undone. And, and I sang this morning, which really helped my heart. Um, and then it was still just kind of gnawing at me a little bit. And so I just happened to be in there praying and looking at the prayers. And I just want to read one. Um, I assume this is from a kid because on the back there's hangman, right? Um, and there's something about school grades that I won't read, but um, which is probably more interesting than listening to me in here, which I understand. Uh, but l listen to what this says, even in the idea of building your own walls versus like for me in this moment going like, God, would you... Would you take care of me? Because I'm feeling a little anxious about this. And this is what this, this prayer card says. It says, I'm not what I do. I am not what I have. I'm beloved because of you. It's who I am. No one can take that from me. <clears throat> I don't have to hurry. I don't have to worry. I can trust my friend Jesus and share his love with the world. <laughs> I'm just saying, <laughs> I know, it's true, right? From, I don't know what age this kid is, but it's a kid. Isn't that true for us? Man, we don't have to hurry, we don't have to worry. Like, let's let God build our walls of protection. You don't have to defend yourself. Keep trusting in his timing. No one can take that away from you if you are in Christ. It's true. Let's look at this last one. Um, again, we have the faith, our, our cultural heritage in the midst of being Christians. We have faith to sing when our circumstances are unsingable. We have shame from our past that gets undone and forgotten. We have the promise that we won't feel the wrath of God that we deserve. We have solid ground, protection amidst uh, beauty in the midst of chaos. And then this last one, our cultural heritage, is that we have the Lord is our teacher, resulting in peace, righteousness, and separation from oppression, fear, and terror. Verse 13. All your children will be taught by the Lord, and great will be their peace. And righteousness, you will be established. Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. 
terror will be removed, far, far removed, it will not come near you. If anyone does attack you, it will not be my doing. For whoever attacks you will surrender to you. Verse 16, see, it is I who created the blacksmith, who fans the coals into flame and forges the weapon fit for its work. And it is I who have created the destroyer to wreak havoc. No weapon formed against you will prevail, and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. This last one, our heritage, is that we have the Lord as our teacher, resulting in peace, righteousness, and separation from oppression, fear, and terror. Again, the, the world's heritage would, would say this. This is what's passed down to you in, in the world's formula, is that, uh, again, your teacher's life, your experiences, you make the proper adjustments and you will be happy. Life is your teacher. The people around you are your teacher, but this is saying, like, no, like, the Lord is our teacher. His word teaches us. His spirit teaches us. His community teaches us. And as we abide in that teaching, we get to experience peace, righteousness, separation from oppression, fear, and terror. Now, to me, this just like screams Psalm 23 to me. Because I don't think this, what this is saying is like there's not going to be any bad things that happen to you. That's kind of a prosperity gospel version of like, okay, if I'm in Christ, nothing bad will happen to me. No, we live in a broken world where people are hurting. When you learn to love like Jesus loves, there's a death that comes with that type of love. There's going to be problems until Jesus comes back. And I also don't think, um, it, it, you know, there was a famous football player that, that if you've seen this clip, from this text, he's, you know, getting ready for the game and he's trying to pump up his team. He's saying, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. He's making them repeat it to him. I'm going like, that's, that's not what that means at all. That's not what that means. It's meaning that like, if you are in Christ, you abide by him. Just like Psalm 23 says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your right hand guides me. That even in the midst of our broken world and we have fear and we have anxiety, when you are in Christ and you let the Lord be your teacher and you abide in that and you listen to that and you claim that truth, you have a peace like no other peace, even in the midst of dark circumstances. You can go, okay, I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense to me. I feel fearful. I'm going to trust. And even the text in verse 16, what God is saying through the prophets is like, listen, I'm the one that controls the blacksmith that makes the swords that come against you. I'm the one that controls. I am sovereign over those things. Even if they don't make sense to you, I am sovereign. Know that if you are found in Christ, you can have real peace. You can have real peace, even in the midst of your circumstances. That's good news for us. And even in verse 17, he says, you will refute every tongue that accuses you. That's the weapons that come against us, right? This idea of people trying to put us in a place of identity that's not the identity we find in Christ. And he's saying, you, you can refute that. Because when you're in Christ and the Lord is your teacher and you start to really understand what that means to be positioned in Christ, that you're blameless, that you're free of shame, that you've been forgiven, and you stand on that truth, say whatever you want about me. 
Say what you, like, I'm, I'm standing here. I'm not standing on your opinion of me. I don't need to defend what you think of me. I'm standing in the truth of who I am in Christ. He's my teacher. That gives me a sense of peace and joy, even in the midst of things being said about me. I go, okay, that's okay. I know who I am. I know who my teacher is. What's the heritage that belongs to the servants of the Lord? Again, these five things that we need to hear because, again, some of us are just living into the heritage of, of what our families have done or, or what the world says is true. And if we are in Christ, if we've made the decision to surrender our life in Christ, we need to be reminded of this truth. You have faith to sing when circumstances seem unsingable. You have shame from your past, undone, forgotten. You have the promise that we won't feel the wrath of God that we deserve. He won't leave us in his anger. You have solid ground protection protection and beauty in the midst of chaos. You have the Lord as your teacher resulting in peace, righteousness, and separation from oppression, fear, and terror. That is good news. That's good news. And we forget it all the time. I forget it all the time because I'm going to walk out of here and I'm going to hear a thousand different messages in the opposite direction to try and tell me what's true about who I am. And I want to go, no, this is true. And we need ourselves to remind uh, each other of that as we're in Christ, as we call each other in love and grace and truth. And even the idea of cultural heritage as we think of some of the artifacts that get passed down to us like a Bible or a typewriter, there's something we do every week tangibly, an object every week that we take tangibly to go, no, this is what my heritage is. And it's the table. It's a piece of bread which represents Christ's body given to us and juice which represents Christ's blood shed for the forgiveness of my sins. That's the access point where shame comes undone. I can't do it unless I surrender my life to that truth and that goodness of Jesus' work on the cross for me. And so that's why we take the table every single week as a tangible reminder of our heritage. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we so need to be reminded of what's true of us in you. Thanks for this beautiful truth that you sing over your bride, over your people in Isaiah 54. Make it be true of us. Pray it would sink down to our hearts from our heads as we take this bread and this cup this morning. As we sing, would you reshape our thoughts and our mind to be focused on what's true of us in you? We need it this morning as encouragement. We pray that you would do it. We ask it in your name. Amen.